Joshua chapter 3. Hear the word of God with me. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded of the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. <coughs> so Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here, and hear the words of the Lord our God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand up as a heap. And so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And, and as the, those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows at its banks during the whole time of harvest. But the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jordan, or Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. And our text for this morning is verse 5 of chapter 3. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered with me here in Salem this morning. Tomorrow is one of the most mysterious words in our English language. Who knows anything about tomorrow? Yesterday is well known, it is well recorded, and it is what we call history. We can read about it in textbooks, and we can even read about it in what we call historical novels. And children are taught history in school, 
and we know, or at least we can know about yesterday, and we can learn from history. Today is unfolding itself. Some of today is already known. It has already become history. The rest of today will soon be revealed, and the events of today will also then be recorded in history. But tomorrow? That's a mysterious word. We stand before it as we would before a strange closed door. We do not know what lies on the other side of today. As the Christian hymn writer observes, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of golden days or weary ways before his face I see. And we know the reality of that statement. <coughs> we know not whether our future will consist of golden days or weary ways. We don't know if tomorrow will be kind or burdensome. That information, that door to knowing, that information remains closed and mysterious. In fact, in fact, the Apostle James says it so well when he writes, Come now, you who say, Tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, and we will continue there for a year, and we will buy and sell and make a profit. He says, What do you know about tomorrow? What do you know what tomorrow will bring? In fact, he says, You don't even know if there will be a tomorrow. But, Despite the fact that tomorrow has always been shrouded in mystery, man has always had a foolish interest in knowing what of tomorrow. Fortune tellers and soothsayers have been with us since the dawn of creation. We read of them even in scripture. But it seems that today, that interest in telling the future is even stronger. Today there seems to be a greater interest to draw that veil aside and to glimpse into what is yet to come. Astrologers, crystal gazers, and fortune tellers are applying their fraudulent trade with huge success these days. Every major newspaper contains horoscopes purporting to predict a person's future based on the position of the moon and the stars, and, and gullible and undiscerning people are gobbling it all up. They want to know, is tomorrow full of glory or despair? Men want to know what the future holds. Will our Canadian economy tank? Or will it explode as promised by Mr. Trudeau and his liberal government? Will the war in Ukraine escalate? Or will the world powers broker some kind of a solution? Will North Korea and Iran form a coalition and become a nuclear threat culminating in World War III, this time with <coughs> nuclear weapons? And what about the tremendous influence of the immoral alphabet people? Just this past week, we were horrified to see thousands of gay, queer, and trans people, some of the women topless, some of the men totally naked, marching in the streets of New York City and Toronto, chanting, we're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. Even more disheartening it was to see thousands of Canadian citizens lining the streets in support of this so-called inclusive toleration movement. And my dear people of God, the thoughtful Bible-believing child of God, through the eyes of his or her faith, clearly saw the face, the very face of Satan in those smiling faces in that parade. Seeing our nation then through the lenses of such blatant immorality, then tomorrow is filled with evolutionary, world-shaking potentialities and possibilities. 
perhaps for good or for evil, but in many ways tomorrow does not look promising. And in, and, and, and in the faces of these grim uncertainties, men have grown panicky and even pessimistic. For some, the shadows of the future have grown so long and daunting that they live each day in an unhealthy fear of tomorrow. The joy of life and living escapes them and a sense of fatalism pervades their view of life, giving birth to despair. But for the people of God, though facing the same facts, the same realities of life as the rest of the world, they look to tomorrow not with despair, but with confidence. They look to the future in hope and even joy, and that makes sense because, you see, you cannot be a pessimist if you believe in a sovereign God. The Christian knows that tomorrow is part of God's plan and under God's control. The Christian knows that the future of the world rests within our sovereign God's control and, and it rests in a sovereign God who is firmly seated on his eternal throne in heaven from where he directs all world history through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian knows that he doesn't know the future, but he knows who holds the future. The Christian, through the eyes of his faith, sees he sees Jesus gathering, defending, and preserving his church. And so the people of God, they look to tomorrow with confidence. People of God, yesterday our nation celebrated the anniversary of Confederation, and we witnessed an outpouring of exuberant patriotism. Everywhere throughout the land, people gathered and expressed their confidence in the future of the nation. And in that context, I want to administer God's word to you this morning, using as my theme, What of Tomorrow? We want to examine the glorious promise of the future, but we also want to hear the commandment for today. So what of tomorrow? The glorious promise of the future, but the commandment for today. The text assures us that tomorrow the Lord will do great things for us. But the promise comes with a condition. The assurance of a glorious tomorrow lies in our obedience to the commandment of today. Sanctify yourselves. Congregation, the commandment in our text of the Old Testament church was simple and profound. Sanctify yourselves. But my dear precious saints of God, gathered with me here in Bowmanville, think deeply with me, for it is a commandment not only to the ancient church, not only to individual Israelites, not only to Israel as a nation, <coughs> but the same commandment comes to us. It comes to you and to me individually as believers, collectively as families, and even as a church here in Bowmanville. And it comes to us as a nation in Canada. Sanctify yourselves. In their biblical historical context, these words were originally directed to the children of Israel as they stood at last after 40 years of wandering in the heart of the in the heat of the desert it comes at last as they stood at the borders of the promised land you know the story after 40 years of aimlessly wandering in the wilderness there they were there they were finally standing at the edge of the Jordan River in sight of the promised land before them lay Canaan the land flowing with milk and honey it was their land it was deeded to them it was promised them by God and they could see the land before them it was so close but in order for them to possess it 
They had to first cross the Jordan River, and then they had to deal with the Amorites and all their allies who would surely wage war against them. But the prospect of war presented a unique challenge for Israel. You see, although they had a thorough knowledge of the desert wilderness, although the 40 years had given them an expert knowledge of its geography and climate, and although they knew how to live and (coughs) survive in the desert, now they stood on the threshold of a new experience. God had said to them, you have not passed this way before. Their old leader Moses was dead. And of all the thousands which had fled out of Egypt, only two leaders of the entire host remained, and Israel had no experience at war. They were not equipped. They were not prepared for war. They were not soldiers in that sense. They were nomads traveling through the desert for 40 years. Their hearts and their hands were not prepared for battle. Try to imagine them with me if you can. There they stood. They looked ahead and they saw a hard task ahead of them. They could see the promised land. They could see Jericho. There it stood. But but, but it stood, it stood, it stood, it stood in their way. It was a formidable place. It was intimidating, apparently safe behind its massive walls. But now these nomads, they were called to, to conquer it. Try to put yourself... Try to put yourself with them there at that river bank. With them you would despairingly have cried out, 40 years of wandering in the desert, for what? We are defeated. We can go no further. And an enemy army stands in, the, in, in wait to, to destroy us. And here we are. Now what? People of God, is it any wonder that we read so frequently in the first chapter of Joshua be strong, be of good courage. They needed special guidance for the uncertain way before them. They had no army in the military sense. They had no weapons for war on that scale. And the future therefore looked bleak and unpromising. And so they needed faith. They needed courage to go forward. But above all, according to the text, they needed consecration. Joshua comes to Israel and prepares them for the battle. And he says, sanctify yourselves. People of God, think with me. This commandment surprises us, but only if we read superficially. You see, we would have expected the commandment to be arm yourselves, prepare yourselves for battle, but no, sanctify yourselves, or if you will, consecrate yourselves. And my dear people of God, that is, that is in short the message of our New Testament Joshua, Jesus Christ. And that same commandment is the greatest need of the hour also in our times. Sanctify yourselves. That is the message of our New Testament, Jesus Christ. Before God would deliver the enemy into the hands of Israel, they had to not arm themselves but sanctify themselves. Did you catch that? Do you understand what God is saying to us here? God is telling Israel that he will do no wonders among them unless they individually and collectively sanctified themselves. God says, 
Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. People of God, think with me. As a nation, as families, as individuals, and even as, even as a church, God calls to us and he says, do not expect my blessing unless, unless you first sanctify yourselves. That's it, that's it. God calls us to a new and holier life. God calls us to a deeper and more earnest commitment to our divine mission. God calls us to a clear-cut separation from the philosophies and the conduct of a perishing world. And, and when I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. But let me ask you, do you not feel the need of penitence and cleansing in your own heart, in your own life? Do you not need to make a greater effort at personal sanctification and holiness? What think ye? Are you, as a Christian individual, are you personally living up to that high calling wherewith Christ has called you? And how about our homes and our marriages? Are our homes sanctified havens for nurturing our mates and raising up godly sons and daughters to follow us? How about our families? Do you believe that your own family is living in full fellowship with God? And are you, are you leading, guiding, and praying so that your family may be sanctified before the Lord? What about our community? Is our community living up to the known ideals which Christ has set? And then yet, what of our nation? Do not the moral liabilities of our nation overwhelm you and bring you to your knees with a prayer for a heaven-sent revival? Do I really need to convince you that our nation, our glorious nation, is morally and spiritually bankrupt? My dear people of God, forgive me, but Canadian patriotism runs high especially during that celebration of the anniversary of our confederation. For weeks in advance, flags were everywhere, and almost every Canadian community organized activities to publicly celebrate the land. Communities everywhere gathered in some kind of Canada Day celebration, usually culminating in a display of fireworks. Canadian patriotism was everywhere, but I am convinced it was a wholly misguided and unwarranted patriotism. Signs confidently expressed God's blessing upon our nation. They were everywhere. But my dear people of God, it would be my conviction that it is a false pride. For our nation has no reason to expect God's blessing. God bless Canada? Really? where abortions have become a state-sanctioned method of birth control? God bless our nation, where doctor-assisted death has become nothing less than murder and suicide? God bless our land, where the state encourages and promotes gambling and casinos, even while being aware of the social and moral difficulties which must naturally accompany those practices? God bless our land, where materialism is the God of the citizens. God bless our land when God's laws may not be posted in public buildings. God bless our land where rape and murder is the order of the day. 
God bless our land where gay marriage is sanctioned and protected by law. God bless our land where gays and transvestites proudly display their bodies and their wares, threatening to corrupt the children of those who oppose them. God bless our land where women can become men, men can become women. Would it not be better to post signs saying, pray for our land and may she repent of her horrific sins against God and his laws? Unless there is proper repentance individually and collectively, how dare we ask God's blessing upon our nation? No, the national call needs to be, Canada, sanctify yourself. And what about the church scene in our land? Is it not also appalling? Corey and I were struck so often as we traveled across the country to serve the various churches in the land at the number of church buildings that have been closed and converted into shops and antique stores. The houses of worship are no longer part of the fabric of our society. Churches are being closed and abandoned for lack of attendance and of the churches that still do welcome their congregations on Sunday mornings for worship, thousands of them, while still claiming to believe their traditional historic creeds, deny the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, total depravity, the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and almost every other cardinal doctrine of the historic Christian faith. The churches in the land have become little more than venues of entertainment, social action, and hotbeds for false doctrine. Does the church not need to hear the same command, sanctify yourself? And what about the people of the land? Need I remind you this is a nation of so many broken homes? I read recently that three out of four marriages now end in divorce in Canada. And God says, I hate divorce. That that doesn't seem to affect three quarters of the married people in our land. Adultery has become an acceptable norm. Premarital sex is condoned and promoted. Drug use is epidemic. And alcohol abuse is becoming ever more common, even among church members. Addiction to pornography is tearing at the fabric of the land and rape, insurrection, murder, robbery, homosexual activity. It's all part of the normal part of our national life. What think you? Do we need to sanctify? Do we need sanctification in our land? My dear people, God, as individuals, as churches, and as a nation, we stand indicted before the bar of an almighty God. Even as Christians... What shall we say about the average church member who is described by the traditional phrase as being a communicant member in good and regular standing? Has the average church member in our land, has he crucified the old nature and is the world crucified to him? Has Christ become so dear and precious to him and is the new life so complete in him that the world has lost its subtle claims for him or charms? What must we say about the loyalties, the priorities, and the values, even of many professing Christians, perhaps even, even among us here today? Be not conformed to the world, says the Bible, but many confessing Christians continue to compromise with the world by doing as the world does. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. <coughs> but many so-called followers of Scripture as followers of scriptural teaching seem to love the world more than the church. Many church members appear to love the things of the world more than Bible study or prayer meeting, church services. Do you not know 
that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. But thousands of people who profess to be Christians would rather antagonize heaven than offend their earthly friends. Come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. But the line of demarcation between the believer and the man of the world, the line continues to fade and become ever more hazy. In an ancient day, the disciples, they were recognized by the world because of their distinctive conduct and their distinctive faith. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ should still be distinguished that way. Whether you work in the store, the office, the shop, in the barn, on the tractor, whether you are a student at school, can it be said of you that your life is characteristically Christian? You may call it old-fashioned or puritanical or anything else that you like, but those are true. Those who are truly consecrated, they, they have, like the Apostle Paul, they have been crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to them. If God is going to do wonders in the church and through the church, we will need to begin today with a commitment to sanctify ourselves. That is God's commandment also for us here today in Bowmanville. But our text goes on. If we have been prayerfully obedient to this commandment, if we have poured out our hearts in humble penitence before the Lord, then we may also appropriate the promise. If we are faithful in consecrating ourselves before the Lord, then the promise of the text is ours as well. We read, tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That's his promise. That's his promise to a sanctified people. Israel obeyed and you know what happened. The great Jordan River divided before them. Jericho's walls fell flat. The city was conquered. The armies of, armies of the 31 kings were routed. Even the sun and the moon stood still in the heavens. And the promised land, though filled with giants, was also filled with milk and honey. And God gave it to his people, and it became their possession. And that God will do for Canada and for the church and for you and for me and for our families. But hear me well. The wonders of his grace and power flow out over sanctified lives. The ancient truth that God spoke to Solomon still stands. If my people, which are called by my name, if they shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin and I will, what? I will heal their land. My dear people of God, Canada was once a proud, glorious, and a moral nation. It was a land overwhelmed by God's mercies, and God is ready to again do wonders in forgiveness and restoration to that former glory of former glories, if only we will seek his face and turn in penitence from self and from sin. He's ready to do wonders in guiding the government of our fair land. He's ready to grant material blessings. He's ready to grant spiritual power to his church and to every individual in it. Here is a genuine promise and hope for the future. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Tomorrow. It need not be a mysterious word. It need not be a time we anticipate with dread. It can be a time of wonders, a time of victory for us personally 
It can be a time of wonders and a victory for our families. It can be a time of wonders and a victory for our church and even for our land. Return with me now for a moment to the historical context of our text. There stood Israel. They stood there. There stood the Old Testament church, if you will. That long season of preparation had come to an end and the daunting task confronting the enemy must now be tackled. Understand this well. The 40 years had, 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 they had spent in the wilderness must be viewed from a, a twofold standpoint. First, it was a divine judgment on the adult generation which after being so graciously brought out of Egypt and so glorious delivered at the Red Sea gave way to an evil heart of unbelief balking at the prospect of conquering Canaan. Second, it was a training. The 40 years was a training ground for the younger generation who were to obey or who were to occupy the land of the promise. And my dear people, God, it will be my personal conviction that this has not always been sufficiently recognized, explained, and stressed when this history is being told. You see, during those 40 years, the older generation all passed away. But many sons and daughters had been born, and they... They were given to behold the wonders of the Lord in a manner and to an extent which no other generation ever had. There was a visible display of God's fullness, faithfulness before their eyes when the younger generation saw God sustaining grace and power in such a, to a vast number of people by, in, their, in their supply of daily food from heaven. And even at the close of those 40 years, Moses could say, even your clothes and your shoes have not worn out these 40 days. And my dear people, God, that is still God's way with his people. God still comes to us. He comes especially to our young people, and he calls us to trust in him. But he does not. He does so. He calls us to trust him only after having first shown us his blessing. God does not come to you and to me calling us to trust in him with all of your heart until he has given us clear proof that he is fully worthy of our confidence. God does not call upon us to overcome the world, to mortify our, our old nature and resist the devil and to lean not on our own understandings until, until he has strengthened us with his might, by his spirit in the inner man. But now notice with me how he does that here. In verse 2 of our chapter we read, And so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And that strikes us as a bit strange already. At first thought it seemed strange that such a multitude should be left in camp there for this length of time before any further word was spoken to them. But a little reflection should indicate the Lord's design and intent, and then it show us will show us the important lesson that we need to learn. People of God, ponder this incident with me. Try to visualize the scene before you in your mind's eye. It was not an army of men only, but it was a huge, a vast congregation of men, women, and children to say nothing of their baggage and their herds of animals. They were on their way to the promised land. For 40 years they had marched on their way to glory land. And suddenly they could go no further. 
the road was blocked by the river. And whatever the breadth and the depth of the Jordan might be today, it is evident that it presented an impassable obstruction in Joshua's time. And moreover, (coughs) it was in flood at that particular season. And yet they were left to sit and to gaze upon that obstacle in front of them for three days. For three days they sat there wondering how in the world will we overcome such great obstacles. They saw the river. They saw Jericho. They knew the enemy armies on the other side. How in the world can we ever overcome such great obstacles? It is, it is impossible. Why was that now? What was the Lord's objective in, 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 in this? Why? Why did God allow them to sit there for three days, not telling them how they were to cross over? Well, the simple answer is this. God let them sit there for the three days to impress upon Israel more deeply the realization of their own utter helplessness. God wanted them to learn of their utter helplessness apart from him. God caused them grief and anxiety in order for them to to, to, to drive them closer to him. And my dear precious saints of God gathered here with me this morning, that is still so today. It is the chief design of God's providential dealing with us. Think with me. Does God not often call us to the same patience in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles? Is it not the gracious way of the Lord to bring us into situations from which we cannot extricate ourselves? Does God not often confront us with some obstacle which to human wisdom seems insurmountable? And by nature we are a proud, self-reliant people and when we are faced with difficulties we want to solve them by our own wisdom, by our own efforts. But see now God's way with Israel. The Lord graciously resolved to humble them and therefore the difficulties are increased and for a season they are left to themselves. They are left to, in their, uh, to themselves to stew before the Jordan until they had duly weighed the difficulty and discovered that they had nothing of their own wherewith to cross the Jordan and face the opposition. Israel was left for three days to gaze at their own helplessness and their own impotency. They were left there for three days to convince them that apart from him who alone would undertake for them, they could do nothing. Those three days at the river was the necessary preparation for what followed. The three days were the background from which the miracle might be all the more evident and the more appreciated by Israel. My dear people of God, man's helplessness furnishes the most suitable opportunity for God to to display his power. And it's not until man is made painfully aware of his own need that he turns unto the Lord and to seek his intervention. And that truth is written large across the 107th Psalm. You might want to read that for your afternoon devotions. There we read, hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted in them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. There was none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them. 
They drew near unto the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord. In other words, they, they were at their wits end. And then they cried out unto the Lord. So to there the Jordan River. In order to prepare them for the great things that God would do. They first of all had to learn to give up any confidence in themselves. My dear precious people of God gathered here with me in Bowmanville as a congregation and as individuals. You have been blessed to have been fed by the very word of God today. But now you are sent back to your homes and tomorrow you are sent back to your places of work or business or wherever God calls you to be. And now, after having pressed hard around God's altar together, God now sends you back out into the world. And as you wonder what tomorrow may bring, begin with the prayer that God will enable you to surrender yourself and your future more and more into his hands. And then sanctify yourselves. For after you have suffered a little while, God will do great things for you. If only we will sanctify ourselves, even then daunting, powerful rivers that stand in our way will be parted and divided for us to cross. And even fortified walls like those of Jericho will tumble and make room for us. If only we will sanctify ourselves by his grace, then God, in his marvelous grace, will do marvelous things for us. If not here in Bowmanville, then most certainly in glory. May it be so for each of us and our children.